Good morning, church. How are you? It is really good to have Bud on board with us as elder, and uh, we're excited about that. And I think he's a great addition to the elder council, and just looking forward to working with him. And and I've already enjoyed it in the few weeks he's already been serving. So we're just really glad to see that happen. Um, open up your Bibles to Galatians three. This morning we'll be there. And before we get there, though, you know, isn't it interesting? That the weekend that the Noah movie opens up, it has been raining nonstop this whole weekend. Don't you find that odd? Um, how many of you have seen the movie? All right, okay. We saw it yesterday morning, you know, due to the $6.50 price on those early morning tickets. I don't know when the last time was that we went and saw a movie two weekends in a row. We haven't done that in a long time. Now, a couple of things I want to say about the movie, and, and I actually am going to have, I think that this will fit into our sermon in a few moments also, but I'll get there in a second. First of all, I don't expect people of faith, I, I mean, excuse me, I don't expect people with no faith to accurately depict the stories of faith. They have no reason to want to do that. I, I don't think that it's possible for people who have never come into a saving relationship with Christ to really have an understanding of what the faith issues are that surround the biblical stories. And so I have my expectations are low, I guess, of movies like Noah and all, because I don't go there and expect them to get it right, in a sense, based on how we see it in the faith community. So my expectations are somewhat low, maybe, you know? Um, I would have more issues, far more issues, if a church or a Kirk Cameron or someone like that who called themselves a Christian made a movie that radically departed from the biblical story. And so, for so many believers to be so upset that this movie is not the right story, well, I'm saying, what'd you think? What'd you go there expecting from a, a man who says that he is a Jew who is an atheist? I mean, I'm not, I'm not maligning him. That's what he has said about himself. And so, I, I don't have those same expectations that other people have, and so I'm not as disappointed in the movie as many people are. Now, another observation, though, I think that the church is just as guilty of misconstruing the Noah story as Hollywood is. You see, the story is really about judgment, but that's not the way we tell our children the story, is it? Isn't the image that we most often portray with the Noah story one of a little boat with a rainbow and cute little animals in it? Don't we make it to be an appealing children's story and not a story of judgment? So, why would we be so upset with Hollywood for misconstruing the Noah story the way they did when we also mistell it very often ourselves? Right? Alright. So, now then, about the movie. I hated the snake scene. You, you see all those things up there in the, in the slide? All those are snakes. They're coming to get on the boat. I don't like that. Not into snakes. Other than that, you know, um, I, don't, I, I don't think... Another point is, I don't think that I've ever really seen the defiance of mankind in the face of God as portrayed as vividly as the Tubal Crane character did in the movie. There are two different times where he makes these short speeches about the defiance of man as opposed to against God. And, and he's very um, articulate in that defiance. 
and I thought I was just shocked at how articulate and how right on it was. And I thought that that was really an interesting point that they were so able they were able to so vividly characterize the defiance of man toward God. Also, you know, the Noah story is all about judgment, and the movie portrays the theme of judgment accurately, completely accurately. Now. What they're, you know, they are, they, they believe that the, the judgment comes on mankind for different reasons than we believe judgment comes on mankind. But nonetheless, regardless of why judgment is happening, in both cases, in their case and in ours, judgment is happening and they portray it very well. They get that right. But the one scene that most arrested my attention and I was most um, really uh, just very fascinated by is when Noah has gone into the camp of these men, of the bad men, the bad people. And he comes back and is able to articulate the brokenness and the sinfulness of mankind clearly and bluntly. When he is confronted by evil, he sees that evil in himself as well. And he understands that he is equally as evil as those people are. And he comes back to his, to his wife and he, and he explains to her that their children are evil. And he explains to his wife, he says, you're evil. Now that's a pretty bold statement when she's the last woman alive on the planet, right? But he says, you're evil as well and I'm evil too. He, he, he nails it head on. The, the issue of total depravity, he gets, and he articulates it quite well. Now, so why do I bring up the movie, and how I see it connected to Galatians is this. Is that when the world, or in this case like Hollywood, tries to depict biblical episodes of stories, they really struggle with it because they, at some point or another, they're going to come head on with an issue of a miracle, or God's power, or the supernatural. And they're okay with supernatural as long as it's not God's supernatural. As long as it's not a, a supernatural um, act that will give glory to God. And so when they come up against that, they either mock it, like this, like here on this side here, like the Evan Almighty. They mock it in that way. Or, as when they're doing in this movie in Noah, where they're trying to do serious storytelling, they, then they find these spaces where only faith and our supernatural God can explain it, they don't want to go there because that would attribute supernatural power to him. And that would begin to attribute characters of his holiness and stuff that they don't want to really go there with. They'll go there part of the way, but not all the way. And this movie does that. I mean, it clearly says that God created the world. The Creator created the world. Now, by the way, also, I've heard some people go, they won't even refer to him as God. Hey, we've got a book in the Bible that never refers to God in the book of the Bible. In that particular book. But no one wants to throw that out of the Bible. And so, you know, don't throw stones there, alright? Anyway, so they, they clearly attribute, you know, the Creator as creating the earth. That was interesting, wasn't it? But when they come to other places in the story of Noah that should be given left over to supernatural and that God intervenes, they can't do that. And so what they do is they, they interject man into the story. They find a reason why it didn't, it didn't need God to do that. And you see that throughout all kinds of things where the world tries to interpret the Bible. And so all of a sudden, you know, the Red Sea is not a deep sea that people had to cross over on dry land, but it's the Reed Sea that they could walk over because it's very shallow. You see what I mean? They find an explanation to explain God out of the picture. You know, it needs man's help. Man could do this on his own. That's the, that's the bottom line. 
when the world, Hollywood, uh, other philosophies are trying to explain away the God of the creation and the God of the Bible, they find a place where they say, man could do that on his own. They didn't need God. And that's exactly where Paul is in the letter to Galatians in chapter 3. And in essence, he's asking them why they think uh, they need to help God to do his job. Why do they have to work at something God has already done for them? In this, in the, in this first few verses of chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is asking three questions. So, number one, he asks, he refers to, and he says, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes was Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, that, that bewitched you there, it can mean like the casting of a spell, it can mean a trance, one could even take it that far, or it could just mean simply masterfully deceived you, you know. And so, so he's saying, what is it that took your attention off of what God has done and has drawn it away toward going back to the law? He, you know, he speaks about Christ being publicly portrayed. You know, look at this billboard. This was in Texas, and you see this billboard of, and it says, you know, Jesus died, he saves. They're on it. And it's a giant billboard. It's hard to miss that. You would see it for miles. He's saying, that's how clearly portrayed, I portrayed Christ crucified before you. It'd be like the most amazing IMAX presentation. You know, it would just over, sensory overload. So in other words, you clearly understood that Jesus was crucified. It was drawn for you. You, it drew, it, it, you. you understood it. Now why do you think that you don't understand it anymore? What's deceived you to draw you away from the truth? In the second question, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Now, first of all, immediately, some people would still argue, well, you know what, if they were no longer ascribing, if they were, if they were no longer following grace, and they were mixing the two, they're not saved. Well, that's not what Paul says here. He says, they received the Spirit, they're Christians. So there's no doubt about that he's speaking to believers here, but believers who are confused about what is right is more accurate. So, in other words, did the Spirit of God come to you into your life because of your obedience to the law? Did you think you were that good at obeying the law? Or did that happen due to your faith? That's the second question he's asking there. You know, you don't get saved by doing the law, but by hearing the gospel and receiving it, believing it by faith. Now then, pay attention. Brian Bell, a pastor that I, I took some of the outline from here, he says, he makes this note, says, Paul uses receiving the spirit of instead of the theme of justification here. Justification is an event. And receiving the spirit he is, is what happens to us as a result of that event. Justification happens in salvation. Receiving the Spirit now happens as what is as a result of us being saved by the Spirit of Christ. We receive that Spirit; it resides in us, and now it guides us through life. I mean, it has lots of roles in our life now. Question number three: Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Note that Paul references something here that has begun and something that is currently happening. Now, on this slide, I want you to note that I'm talking, I'm, I'm highlighting here that for every human being, for those of us in this room, let's call it that, we have had, we have had, and we are going to, we have four stages of life. I'm trying to get this right, four stages of life. 
We were all born dead in sin. First stage. First thing that happened to us. This was our spiritual condition. Dead in sin. Um, and, and then, when we have professed Christ as our Savior, we are made alive in Christ. At salvation, we are made alive in Christ. And then once we're saved... We step into this time where we, it's called sanctification. It's where we are being transformed into the image of God. Where we are being changed. Our, our mind is being changed, transformed. Our heart is being transformed. The way we think is being transformed. And in all that, we begin to act and talk and think differently. And all along the way, ideally, we are becoming, beginning to act, think, and talk more like Christ. Until the day... That he takes us home, and at that, it is glorification. That's the fourth stage of life, so to speak. And in that, what that means is that we're free of our sin. Our broken bodies are no more inhibiting us, and neither is sin. And so, here in the context of our room, as I always have this line in the middle of the room here, on this side of the line here, we are dead in our sin. And this line right here, represents salvation. You know that it doesn't, compa- it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it, it's not the whole room. This line in the room is an event. Salvation is an event. Sanctification happens on this side. And it is a process. It is ongoing. And that's what Paul says here. You began in the Spirit. You were saved in the Spirit as an event. But now, you're being made perfect in the flesh. It's a process. It's something that's happening here. And I think that that's what gets so many of us confused about the issues of grace. That we can so easily understand that we could that event of salvation can happen by grace and it happens by faith. But we so easily step back into works or trying to earn or trying to please God through what we do in our sanctification. And Paul is saying here that we are sanctified by grace and by faith the same way we were saved. And works don't have to happen to do that. They happen as a result of that. Alright? So, his question is, why would you leave behind works and law, observing all that stuff, and, and, and that you, why would you leave your works and your law ways behind so you could receive Christ by faith? That's being begun in the Spirit. And then why would you go back to re, by to observing the laws, which is being perfected by flesh? In verse 3, that's what he's saying. So, the, the fourth question, Have you suffered so many things in vain? We read in Acts 14, where the, Galatia, the, the Christians from this region of Galatia did suffer because of their faith. And we don't know the, the, the extent of that suffering. We don't know all the details of that. But we do know that they were persecuted. They were probably ostracized. They might have had their jobs taken away. They were probably um, uh, uh, excluded from the community. All kinds of things could take the shape or form of persecution. But we know that they suffered in some way because of this. And he's saying, why would you do all that? Why would you go through all that suffering for no reason? And now go back to the law. Was that suffering not counting for anything? The fifth question he asks is, therefore, he says, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? The wonderful things God had done in their region happened because of their law-keeping and works? No. 
but because they responded in faith to the gospel. George Mueller had once said, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. And so Paul is challenging the things that happened in their lives, in their community, that people had seen that were miraculous, that were supernatural. He's saying, did those things happen because you observed the law so well? Or did they happen because of your faith in Christ? So he comes to this place, and then there's these, these four questions right here, four of the five questions that are answered the same way. Did you receive the Spirit of the, by works or of the law? No. Did you progress in your Christian life by your own works? No. Did you suffer for the sake of works? No. Did you receive miracles by keeping the law? No. All of those things happened because of faith. Now, in verse 6, Paul begins to take the Galatians from what they experienced and what they've been taught, publicly portrayed, and he takes them back to Scripture. So he starts here and he says, See, this is what your experience was. This is where you were in law. This is where you were in faith. And now you say you want to go back to the law? Remember your experience. Remember the role faith has had in your life. And then in, in this in this next few verses, verse six and on, he begins to demonstrate that they are not the first ones who have had work, I mean have faith exhibited in their life. But actually it goes all the way back to the beginning of their faith of their of their their uh, of the Jewish faith, of their even the nation. Paul begins to take the Galatians back to this place and he says that salvation comes through faith and not through the law, and Abraham proves it. Now that's a strong statement. Matter of fact, it's such a strong statement that Paul uses Abraham 19 times in his epistles. And Abraham is a pivotal figure in all of his arguments. So, he says, if you want to go back, don't stop at Moses and the law. Let's go way back. Let's go back to Father Abraham, the father of our faith. Remember, they were caught up in the law, in this book, they were struggling with the law. Circumcision, doing all the right things, foods, and feasts and festivals, all of these things here. And he's saying, it was Abraham that started the Jewish people. It was his righteousness, it came by what? By faith. And in his righteousness, his faith, Abraham existed before circumcision. Because that wasn't introduced until Genesis 17. And faith was introduced in Genesis far before that. And it says, and it was long before the law was given to Moses. Because in verse 17 it says that was 430 years after Abraham. And it was even longer before the promised land was. So it was even longer before you were a nation in your own land. So before these three things that are so pivotal for you, you know, circumcision, the law, the nation, and the land. All of that, before all of that, existed Abraham's faith. So in 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9, the question of who are the true children of Abraham and how they would become his children will be the topic of the rest of chapters 3 and 4. So who are the true children of Abraham? Well, Romans 9, 7 through 8, says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So in other words, they're not his they are not the true children because they came from Abraham. 
but through Isaac your descendants would be named. He says, that is it. It is not, in verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So those who have trusted in the seed are the ones who are the descendants, the children of faith. And then, in other words, the NIV, one of the other translations says, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So, all who have believed in Christ, by faith, are spiritual descendants. Have you ever... Um, maybe done one of these Ancestry.com things where you've traced back your your heritage, your lineage, your ancestors, and you find maybe, you know, it started here with this particular guy who came to the colonies or something like that. Well, everyone in this room who professes Christ as their Savior can trace their spiritual heritage back to Abraham. One person. Paul references Genesis 12.3 here when he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That same promise is mentioned in Genesis 18.18, Genesis 22.18, and Genesis 26.4. All these places, the promise is restated that all peoples on earth, Greek, Roman, Jew, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, all peoples on earth, will be blessed through Abraham. God has provided only one way of salvation for all these people everywhere. And we today, we sit here in our chairs today, justified in the same exact way that Abraham was some 4,000 years ago. So, in verses 1-5, through Paul reminds them, how they were saved, and he questions them. He he quizzes them. He really kind of like presses them to to remember how they were saved and how they should continue to live that saved life. And then in verses 6 through 9, he shows them that by faith, that was the way it has always been and it was intended to be. And not only intended just for Jews, but for everyone. Verse 10 in the Living Bible says, For all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep all, does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. So why would anyone be under the curse of the law? Because they couldn't keep all the laws. It takes a perfect life to do that. And none of us have done that. But along came one man who could. Jesus. And then, it goes further here. The law was never intended to be the right way with God. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 where it says that, that, um, where he says that that, um, by requiring, the law requires doing and not trusting. He doesn't say that. He says the, the, what, we're, what is really expected is to believe and to exhibit faith. And so that same principle that God was asking the nation to do in Habakkuk, that is exactly what he's asking individuals to do. 
doing something to merit salvation, he's not asking them to do something. He's asking them to believe that someone else has done it for them. This past week, I had the opportunity to attend an interfaith discussion on heaven, hell, and the afterlife. And a particular individual came up and asked a question of the three men making the, the presentations. It was an imam and a rabbi and a pastor, and they each did a fine job in their own respect, and they were really uh, well-spoken and courteous, and it was a, they did excellent presentations. But a woman came, or no, a man came up and says, is it not true that man has to have some worthiness to receive the gift of, of the afterlife? of heaven, in essence, what he's asking. And all three of them agreed, yes, that man had to be worthy. But that's really not what Paul teaches here. That's really not what he is saying here at all. Because in Galatians 3.13, it says, um, I'm sorry, yes, in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he became the curse for us. And so, for, for anyone to say that we could ever be made worthy, we are never worthy, but Christ is our worthiness for us. Now, as God so often does, this week um, a, a little video clip came across my desk, and so I took the opportunity, I had the chance to watch it, and I think it really, really articulates this point for us really well. And so this is this is how it's set up. You know, you're in this this sterile looking white room with kind of an aura about it. And you have two gentlemen up front who are dressed in white suits and they're immaculate and all. And they have a giant, not a giant, but a, a larger than life scale that people set step on. And and above the scale is the is the the thermostat or the the uh, the meter above it, and the meter reads above it the good o meter, good o meter. So it measures how good people are, and so each person steps up to the scale and they have a file, and this file records in it all the things that the people have done that is good and bad. So one person steps up to the scale and they say, "Here's my file," and they go, "Hmm, impressive. You've done a, you've done a lot of bad stuff." And the person says, yeah, I know, but I, I, I've tried to do some good stuff too. And they say, well, let's see. Step on the scale. And so he steps on the scale, and, and it teeters, and it totters, but then it doesn't really, and it be not good enough. And they say, this way. And he steps off over to the right-hand side. And then the next person comes up, and she says, I want you to know. She has the file. She goes, I want you to know. I've done lots of things bad. But for everything bad I did, I tried to do something good. So in college, I cheated on the test. I did. I admit it. But afterwards, I picked up trash in the parking lot. So it all evens out. I think I'm good. And so our finely dressed guys in white say, well, let's see. Step on the scale. And she steps on the scale. And it teeters and it goes over. But then it falls back down. Beep. Not good enough. And she doesn't understand. She gets off the scale and she goes off the side. She's still asking questions. But why wasn't picking trash good enough? You know, another guy comes up there and he goes, and he has a very small file. 
And he hands it to them, and they go, hmm, not much here. And he goes, well, that's right. He goes, I've been involved in working overseas among needy people my entire life, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this, and I've done that. And they say, well, great, step on the scale. And he steps on the scale, and shockingly, it's not good enough. And then another person steps up, hands on the file, and he goes, my mother goes to church, beep. Another person steps up the file and says, do you take plastic? Do you take credit card? Beep. Not good enough. And finally, another guy steps up the scale. And he hands him his file. And his file is two or three inches thick. And they go, Mmm, you've been busy. And as they're flipping through it, someone from off to their side steps up and hands them another file. And they open the file up. And all the file says is, God's child. And so they look at the guy and they go, we didn't know. And they close the files. And he starts to step on the scale like everyone else has. And they go, oh, no, no. You don't step on the scale. He does. And from off to the side, another guy in a t-shirt that even says, Jesus Christ, he steps on the scale for this man. And And the meter goes, to good. And so he steps off the scale and then he takes his puts his arm around the other guy and they walk off to the other side, opposite where everyone else has gone. And everyone else begins to raise a ruckus and they're screaming, they're shouting, That's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. He stood on the scale for him. And the only reply the two nicely dressed guys in white say is, That's grace, and it's not fair. Grace is demonstrated in verse 13 of this passage. Christ became the curse for us, not because we deserved it, but out of his overwhelming love and God's compassion for mankind. Colossians 1 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Well, that's exactly the message that Paul is communicating to these people. That you can never be good enough. You can never keep that law flawlessly. But instead, Christ redeemed us from the law through his flawless life so that we can enter into an intimate relationship with him, be counted as justified, and may our lives glorify him in that. Let's pray.